You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 15. William Ernest Henley is a poet who wrote the poem Invictus. Invictus is Latin for undefeated or unconquerable. The poem is about the undying fight to keep one's dignity in very undignified circumstances in life. William Henley had a a difficult life, and he wrote this poem after being left hopeless, having contracted tuberculosis, which ended up infecting the bone in his leg, and so he needed his leg amputated. The poem clearly tells of his determination to not be conquered by his circumstances, but instead to take control of his own life. And this is how the poem goes. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeon of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And while we may be tempted to be swept away with the romance of the undying perseverance of the human spirit, The poem's wrong. No matter how we are defiant against our circumstances, no matter how we might think of ourselves to be, no one really is an unconquerable soul. And it is only natural to fight for control and try to take command of our lives when we feel our lives are falling apart, when when things in life seem chaotic, when our circumstances feel hopeless. But nonetheless, it is only the depths of arrogance, pure hubris, that we should claim of ourselves to be the master of our own fate and the captain of our souls. Thinking of captain of our souls, if we stick with naval terms, (laughs) the truth of the matter is, none of us are even seamen, barely recruits, of our own souls. There is one, though, who is more than just the master of our faith, more than the captain of our souls. There is one who is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And our times, our circumstances, our lives are in his hands. He is the absolute sovereign of all. And he has preordained whatever will be, whatever has been, and whatever is. And he is the conqueror 
of the unconquerable soul. And see, we reflect on this because of what we see in our text here this morning. That no, how, no matter how much we may want to take control of our lives, which again, is a natural response when we feel like our lives are out of control. But the truth of the matter is, we are never actually in control. We can never actually determine the course of our lives and what will happen next. But our Lord, our God, is really the one who is in complete control. And we have to recognize that we ourselves will never be. Now, as we've been working our way through Ecclesiastes, we have seen Solomon bemoan the utter futility of, well, everything. Everything under the sun. Everything done in a life that is lived apart from God. Because without God, life is empty. Life is without purpose. Whether it's in our work, or it's in the, the gain of material things, whether it's in riches and wisdom, folly or pleasure, it's all empty. Ultimately, it has no purpose at all. For even if there is something that we can obtain or find delight in, it's all stolen away by death. And we saw in chapter 1 that really it is God who has determined that everything under the sun would be full of futility. And then as we ended last week in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, we saw there that the one who does not simply live life under the sun, who does not live this life apart from God, but lives for what eternally matters, namely God's glory, that one can find satisfaction, can find contentment even in the fleeting things of this life. Because it is God who has determined that he shall find pleasure in those things, however fleeting that pleasure may be. But apart from God, again, everything turns out empty. Because when we pursue those things, when we pursue those fleeting pleasures and contentments, in this life. Apart from God, those things we pursue can never meet the expectations that we're pursuing them for. So to the one who does not look to the fleeting things of this life for wisdom, knowledge, and joy, but instead looks to God and lives in obedience to God, God will give wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the one who lives apart from God, God has determined that all that he does is futile. All that he does is vanity and a striving after the wind. But God will take even what the one who lives apart from him does, all that he does that is futility to him, God will take it and use it for the benefit of the one who lives for God. And all of this points to God's sovereignty. That he is ultimately the one in control. And he has purpose in all that has been and will be and is by his predetermined plan. And nothing is unless God has predetermined it to be. Life is under his sovereign rule. No one is the master of their fate. No one is the captain of their soul. 
For as we'll see in our text here this morning, Solomon expounds on the fact that God is the one who controls all that happens. And he has made everything fit in the time that God has appointed for all that happens. And so as we we get into our text here for this morning, uh, let us see how this is broken up. We see verses 1 through 8 is a poem on the appointed time for everything in life. This clearly is not an uh, exhaustive list of life's experiences, uh, but it's made up of the things that are common for people to experience. And so it's a representation of the whole. And what we see as well as we read this poem is that Solomon uses opposites to make his point that, that this includes everything from, from one end of the spectrum to the other of life's experiences and everything in between. And then as we'll come to verses 9 through 15, we'll see Solomon gives an, exa- uh, an explanation of this poem. And so let's read our text here for this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. Time to seek and time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. Time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So as we examine this passage, again, we see in verse 1, as it begins the poem, for everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. And as I've studied this, I agree with those who would say that, that this is a chiasm. That uh, as we take the phrases as they're, they're grouped together, we see that when he says everything, that is parallel or equal to when he says every matter. And again, refers to all the experiences, every event and circumstance in life. While the word season is parallel, they're equal to the word time. And both refer then to the appointed time, the moment for everything God has determined for one's life. As we look at this and we see the opposites 
that Solomon has laid this poem out with, the first of the opposites, I think, make it very clear that those experiencing life are not the ones in control of life. See, as we look at these verses, there are those who argue that the poem is really about what man has control over. And so they would argue that verses 1 through 8 is about man's responsibility, while verses 9 through 15 is about God's sovereignty. But I'll be honest with you, as we read through this passage, I just can't see that. Especially as you look at the very first thing that Solomon comes to. That there is a time to be born. What control does any person have over birth? Now, someone may say, well, I mean, there is some control, some say, that people have over when someone would be born. But really, as we look at what the scriptures say, people are not the ones in control of that. Uh, The scriptures teach that it's God who opens and closes the womb. God is the one in control of when someone is born. God is the one in control. He is the Lord over life and death. And so he is appointed the time to die as well. This is all pointing to God's sovereignty, God's control over life. And as we look at this, in a sense, you can see uh, this first line as a summation of the entire poem. That's all the experience of life from birth to death. And we see God has determined it all to be in its proper season. There's a proper time to be born and a time to die. A proper time for everything in between. For everything that is, only is, because God has determined it to be. And then parallel with with birthing is planting. Man here, too, has some responsibility, right, in planting. He sows the seed, but but ultimately, really, uh, man has no direct activity in causing the plant to grow. And as the plant grows and it yields fruit, there's a crop to be harvested. And that's what some point to as we see the ESV then says, a time to pluck up what has been planted. So they say that refers to the harvesting. But I think as we see here in the poem that what is plucked up is parallel to a time to die. And so I think as the New American Standard Bible has it, to uproot is actually a good translation. It's more referencing that a plant is is planted in the ground. The seed is planted, and it grows up, and it bears its fruit, but it comes time that that plant will eventually wither and die. And it'd be only useful to be thrown into the burden pile. And so it must be dug up. So again, we see the the ends of life, of of there being birth, and the beginning of life, and growth, and and fruitfulness, but eventually then withering and, and dying. And as we work our way through this, we see that all these experiences from life to death, from birth to death, that there are things that are done and experiences that are desirable ones, things that we we want to go through. We see the, the time for preserving life and building up, but we also see the undesirable things, 
a time to take life and break down. As we look at verse 4, not only in the circumstances of life are there desirable and undesirable things to experience and be done, but there's also the desirable and undesirable emotions that are within life. There's a time for weeping, like when we face death. Not just our own death, but also to the death of a loved one. We see, too, that there's a time for laughing. When we're in the company of dear friends, when holding a newborn baby, and that baby smiles and coops. There's a time also for mourning. There's a time for dancing, expressing joy. As we come to verse 5, there is a, a plethora of interpretations that are given to verse 5. And in fairness, it's, it's, it's a difficult verse. Uh, most arguments, though, as I've studied, I think have little evidence to support them. But I think what we see here is that there is a time in life for friendship. There is a time in life for helping others. Well, there is also times, like we see in war, when we face off with an enemy. And we do things that result in what is devastating to the other. And so it says here that there's a time to cast away stones, which likely refers to clearing a field so that it's useful for planting crops. And there's a time for scattering stones in a field, which was a, a war tactic to make an enemy's field unworkable. And in the same way, there's a time to embrace a friend, and there's a time to refrain from embracing when we face off with an enemy. And then verse 6, we have the, the vaporous reality of our possessions. We will all eventually lose whatever we gain, and we've already seen that and talked about that here in Ecclesiastes, haven't we? There's a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. Uh, there is a time to search for things, and there's a time to give up on our searching. There's a time to keep what we have, and there's a time when it's, it's appropriate to throw away what we have. Verse 7 is, is also just as difficult, if not more difficult, than verse 5, when it talks about tearing and sowing. Tearing could refer to mourning, mourning loss, or mourning in repentance. Uh, the Jews, they would tear their clothes in mourning. And so it could be then that the sowing is that when that time of mourning is over, we're, we're fixing what we've torn. But Michael Eaton, uh, he says that there is no specific evidence that sowing together was an expression of the end of mourning. Matter of fact, he says on this in his commentary, it may be better to take it as a general expression for the varying activities of man, destruction and creative and maybe the idea of, of keeping silence, too, that follows, and a time to speak, go along with a general expression of man's activities. Uh, when one acts wisely or unwisely, knowing when it, they should speak and knowing when they should keep their mouth shut. Some argue the parallel, though, is in mourning, that when one is, is mourning, they, they keep silent. And so then when the time to speak comes, that's when the mourning is over. And that could very well be the case. And finally, then, the poem closes with verse 8. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war 
and a time for peace. Uh, Love and hate span the spectrum of human emotions. And we see these things reflected in war and peace. And as we think on this poem, again, what is expressed here is the experience of life. And these are the common experiences, and so it can be said nothing really changes, as we've already seen said in Ecclesiastes. Being faced with the joys of birth and the sorrows of death, we all know what it is to gain and to lose, to know it's time to give up on our searching because what we've lost we're never going to find. This is the experience of every generation that has been. It will be the experience of every generation to come as long as the Lord tarries. It's a monotonous cycle the preacher has already discussed. And the poem, with all of its opposites, not only shows us each end of the spectrum of life's experiences, but again, it demonstrates the futility in all of life. That there is birth, but every birth ends in death. We may gain and go through a time of keeping, but we also end up needing to throw away what we have. Again, it is God who has subjected everything to futility. And we never know when the seasons of our lives are going to change. In one instance, we can be celebrating life at a birthday party and then turn around and be mourning the loss of a loved one. We can sow a seed and enjoy the harvest, but soon we'll find ourselves digging up that plant from its roots because it has died and withered and is no longer worth it. And as long as we keep everything within the experience of life in its proper perspective, we can enjoy the seasons that come, enjoy the seasons of harvest and celebration. We can be thankful for having things. But when those things become the pursuit of life, when we try to find our satisfaction in them, we find that they are just vanity of vanities. Because it's all passing. We have no control over it. We make no determinations. For it is God who has appointed the time for all things. It is he who, for his purposes, gives and takes away. Right? That was the lesson Job had to learn, right? It's the Lord that gives and the Lord takes away. No one is truly the master of their fate nor the captain of their soul. We are not in control. And Psalm explains this as we go into verses 9 through 15, and he explains the poem. He starts there in verse 9 by asking once again, what the point is in anyone's work or exertion. And here the question springs from what the preacher observes, as we see there in verse 10. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, or it can also be translated to be afflicted with. This is like what we read in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, where Solomon ascribes to God's sovereign decree all that is vanity under the sun. Mankind continues on providentially, exerting themselves towards ends that do not last and have no eternal significance. Because life under the sun is subject to the curse of sin. 
Mankind's rebellion was met with God's justice. And so futility, suffering, and death entered the scene and is the experience of all of our lives. And as we saw last week, death steals any meaning away, any lasting significance away from anything we obtain. There's nothing that we can ultimately hold on to in this life. There's nothing that we can keep from passing, no change of the seasons that we can keep from happening. We wield no control. That doesn't keep us from trying to have control, right? That doesn't keep us from trying to hold on to things that have passed. That's why we are so drawn to things that give us a sense of nostalgia, right? Because we want to hold on to those those easier times, those those more simpler times, those those, those moments that we cherish and, and love. And I admit it, I, 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 I hold on to things more tightly than I should. And I think many of us, we try to relive childhood and those, those, uh, those warm memories that we have of the past, and we try to relive them through our kids. Right? There, there are many things that I, I've tried to get my kids into because I was once into them. There have been areas where I've successful. You know, they, they come to like Ninja Turtles. That was, that was pretty good. Areas where I wasn't as successful. They, they're not so thrilled with baseball. But the fact is that I have to admit and know it's true that the 90s are gone. And I ain't getting them back. <laughs> Those summer nights of playing out in, in my, my backyard as a kid, those times are gone. Sunday afternoons at my grandparents are gone. And time flies. It's fleeting. It's a vapor. It's vanity. And here we are. Uh, It's almost mid-October. We're going to turn around and we're going to have Reformation Day and we're going to be handing out tracts and things in the parking lot. And then soon after that, we're going to blink and it's going to be Thanksgiving. And before you know it, we're going to be gathered here on Christmas Eve. And all the while, so many of us are still trying to hold on to times past and moments that we cherish. We hold on with such a tight grip. And there are those that have died that we love, that we miss, and we cannot get those times and moments and experiences back. And of all of our holding on to times that we cannot truly keep, it's what makes the holidays so difficult for so many. And the response to this, I know, may seem cold. But one, I say this being one who struggles with that nostalgia and struggles around the times of holidays for the things that have passed and the people that are gone. But the truth of the matter is, that's life. I think that's what Solomon would say. Hey, that, that's life. That's the curse of sin. We were never meant to hold on to these things because in none of these things can purpose for our lives be found. No, there is a time 
for birth, and there's a time to die, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, and a time to keep, and a time to lose. And once the time has passed, we cannot get it back. No matter what we do. We can reflect on fond memories, and in its place, that's, that's not a bad thing. We can even take pride in moments and accomplishments that have passed. We can treasure people in our hearts. But we cannot keep the past. We cannot even hold on to the here and now. We see in verse 11, he says, He has, God has, made everything beautiful in its time. When things happen, when they are, they are appropriate by God's sovereign decree for the time they happen in. Whether mourning or dancing, whether love or hate, whether whatever we experience. Again, we read in the very first verse of chapter 3 here, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And if we really believe that, if we can just get that into our heads, what pain and depression could we save ourselves from? Because it should drive us to realize whatever it is that we cannot hold on to, we cannot hold on to it because our lives were not meant to find our purpose and satisfaction in it. Not in those relationships, not in those experiences, or whatever is part of time past. God has allowed for them for his purposes in the time they were. But we must realize we cannot find our purpose in them. We must realize there's more than this fleeting life. And deep down, we do know that. Everyone knows that. Verse 11 continues and says, Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. At the core of our very existence, we sense something that transcends the here and now. And this may seem like a positive thing as we read it, but really, in context, it actually leads to more futility. One, we, we have been made for what eternally matters. So nothing in this time, in the here and now, uh, can satisfy and bring purpose to us. But more specifically here to what I think is going on in verse 11, we have a sense and a drive for what is more than the here and now. But being in the here and now, we can never reach beyond the here and now. God has an eternal purpose in all that he has made to pass, even in the fleeting things. And yet we cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. We don't know what God is doing. And whatever our experiences, whatever we face, whatever we go through, we can find ourselves tending to want to ask, God, why did you allow that to happen? Why did you take that away? God, what are you doing? But my friend, that's not for us to know. I think of Deuteronomy 29, 29. This is the secret things belong to God. Whatever he has determined to reveal or to leave veiled, it's his prerogative. Who are we to question God? 
Instead, we should recognize that clearly this short and fleeting life is not all there is. So to willingly chase the wind and live as if this fleeting life is all there is, is the very definition of asinine. There would be nothing more stupid than to live as if this life is it, when we know it's not. There's more than life under the sun. We may not know all the specific reasons that things happen and when they happen, but what we do know is that ultimately everything is for God's glory. We know that much. That we are here for God. So we must live in the fear of God. For no matter how we wish this life would be, we are not the masters of our fate. Our times are controlled by God, are for God, and so we must live for God and trust God in our times. So what do we do with that? Well, as, as we continue here, in verses 12 to 13, much like what we saw in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, we see things, when we understand them in their proper perspective, the things of this life, not taking our experiences and all that we are working and toiling for, not seeing these things as the purpose in life or the pursuit of satisfaction in life, when we have them in the right perspective, we can take these things in the fleeting life, and take them for the value that they actually have. Not an eternal worth, but that in this temporary life, there can be temporary joy as God has given it in life. And there can be contentment found in our work, in our toil. By God's grace, he has allowed there to be a degree of value in things. This is his gift. So we can enjoy these things without these things being what we are looking for our fulfillment and purpose in. What we do in this life, what we experience is fleeting. But in contrast to that, we see this in verse 14. The preacher says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God's purposes in everything, stands. His purposes in the time that he has allowed, whatever it is, they stand. And we cannot add to what he is doing. We can't stop what he's doing, and we can't take away from it. There is nothing we can do because we're not in control. He is directing all time, including our lives, to his ends. And just a side note on this, and I know we've, we've discussed this many times before, as we've pointed out and we've seen in, in a number of occasions in Scripture, that God's sovereignty does not lead to a, a, a nihilistic view of life. That we make choices and we are responsible for our choices and our actions, and yet all that falls under God's sovereignty. We are responsible. God is sovereign. We see that clearly in Scripture. Well, they may say, oh, I, don't, I don't get that. I don't see how that fits together. And I'll say, well, you're in good company. See, 
we who are finite, we can't understand the infinite God in his ways. And we weren't meant to. But when we can trust him in what he says here, there is security here. While everything else in this life is insecure, fleeting, and futile, the good, sovereign God of the universe is in total control. He's working his purposes as he reigns over time and all that comes to pass. And why does he do what he does? Well, we see in verse 14, it continues, God has done it so that people fear before him. God demonstrates he is not just the captain of every soul, he is the Lord of lords. So all his work and his purposes, including the futility of life, is to bring us to a place where we bow low in awestruck obedience, in reverent fear of him. And here, there is really security. When we don't need all the answers to all the frustrations of life, but instead trust ourselves to the holy, sovereign God. When we live for him, fearing him, recognizing life is all about him. I don't have to hold on to the things of life that I so treasure because I know it's not about me. And it's not about those things. It's about him. And when life's about him, I can let go. And then as we come to verse 15, we see there what we saw in chapter 1, verse 9. See, the poem shows us that, that nothing changes for man. Generations cycle in and out of life under the sun, while man's condition never changes, his pursuits never change, he is looking for significance, and yet finding futility does not change as each generation repeats the understanding of life seen in verses 1 through 8. And as Temper Longman explains, when we read in verse 15, God seeks what has been driven away, we should understand it as, and God repeats what has passed away. He says, in other words of Colette, there is nothing new under the sun. And so my friends, this is the God we serve. the one who is in control, sovereignly working all things to his ends or his purposes. And as we mentioned last week, when we reflected on Romans 8, 28 and 29, and it tells us that for all of us who are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, for all of us who love God and have been called according to his purpose, he is sovereignly working all things for our good, which is to conform us into the image of Christ for his glory. And my friend, if you have not yet trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are still striving to find satisfaction and purpose in the things of this fleeting life apart from God, if you are still fighting for control to be master of your fate and captain of your soul, hear me when I say this, you're not. Jesus is Lord, and he is your Lord. Turn from your sin and trust your life to him alone who can save your soul. 
He was eternal God who became man. He came as the Lamb of God to lay down his life for his sheep. He alone is the satisfaction of justice and God's anger towards our sin. He alone can save. Trust alone in him and you will be saved. That is the promise of scripture. If you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. Turn to him and believe. And for all of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he is working all things out for our good and his glory. He has made it that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. So wherever you find yourself within the poem there, verses 1 through 8, whether in weeping and mourning or laughing and dancing, whether you're keeping or casting away, in any case, you can trust your time, you can trust your circumstances to this sovereign God, knowing he is sovereignly working for you whom he has called according to his purpose. Live before him in fear as you trust him and trust his good purposes in everything. That in whatever we face, we can know the goodness and the sovereignty of this God in everything. And we're going to sing in a moment, he will hold me fast. We can know that in everything, trusting his goodness and sovereignty over our lives. Will you trust him? Trust him with your eternal life starting now. Trust him for everything, for he is Lord of everything. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.